0: what I'll do uh, to this evening is to perhaps run through some of the issues related to English as an additional language in the school system in England uh, with a particular uh, focus on the way the English language is conceptualized um, within the kind of schooling education domain and maybe some of the issues that I'm going to point out uh, may resonate with you in relation to your own research and your own, as it were, uh, teaching and so on. So perhaps for the first 20 minutes or so, I'll kind of provide an overview of, from my point of view, what EAL looks like and what are the educational concerns in relation to uh, students who are... From EAL's uh, background, from ethnic diversity, uh, 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 families, and so on, or ethnically diverse families, and so on. Okay, without uh, delaying further, I'll start. Um, I'll start with uh, what teachers are being told in relation to EAL at the moment. So this is the current teacher standards. That is, anybody who is trying to qualify as a teacher uh, will have to pay attention to these standards. And for all subjects now, not just uh, teaching English or even something called EAL, Okay, all teachers must have a clear understanding of the needs of all pupils, including those with English as an additional language. In other words, EAL is a... Professional concern for all qualified teachers working in England at the moment. I keep saying England because, as you you know, the devolved nature of uh, politics in the UK is as such that um, Scotland has very much has its own uh, education system, and uh, and and uh, Wales has pretty much the same kind of autonomy in relation to what teachers do and so on. So I'll just focus on on, on the English situation just to be safe, Okay. Okay. so the general situation is everybody must be um, responsible for EAL if you're working in a school context, both primary and secondary. And this is um, uh, the inclusion statement in the new uh, national curriculum to be implemented uh, in 2014, next year, OK? And you'll find these uh, two clauses in all the subject statements, and I'm just pulling these out from the English statements, OK? So you can see, I, I won't read out the, the um, statements to you, but you see that very similar to the um, teacher standards all teachers are expected to take account of EAL and that they have, as it were, the professional responsibility of doing the right thing in terms of monitoring, in terms of uh, looking after their language development and so on. But what it doesn't do, though, is that it doesn't say anything about what the teachers should do or must do, okay? Unlike in a lot of the uh, national curriculum statements um, where the content is often highly specified, recommended and in some cases obligatory because they are regarded as part of the legislation. In relation to EAL, it's very much more a kind of aspirational, moral kind of um, uh, injunction so that teachers are aware of EAL, but they're not told what to do. But it, and in fact, what's interesting is if you do a kind of search, um, you'll find that these are the sum total of um, the EAL statements, 94 words altogether. In relation to all the subject content specification, you'll see 94 words, maybe... Uh, Doesn't amount to too much. (laughs) So, there you are. Everybody's responsible, but very little specific, as it were, uh, support for what teachers should do. And here's the the actual situation on the ground. These numbers, uh, I'm taking the numbers from 2005 onwards, you see that in both the primary and secondary uh, sectors, there has been a steady 1% increase year on year. So it's quite a significant uh, uh, increase. And in fact, you know, in terms of population statistics, 1% year on year increase is very, very unusual. Um, And it's happening. And it's going on, and no matter what the policy statements might tell us, you know, I'm sure we're all aware that the immigration, um, EU policies, and so on, uh, are at the moment, very much in uh, you know, um, in in the foreground of politics. So no matter what people say or do and so on, linguistic diversity seems to be increasing all the time. And I suspect this is not really something that we can do very much about in in, in relation to, if you like, the current configuration of the mobility of labor within Europe and the need for, uh, in in terms of um, the the national institutions such as NHS and so on, the need for labor, for skilled labor from the rest of the world, I suppose Really, what we're looking at is a very long-term uh, situation that's unlikely to be reversed in any quick order, OK? So EAL is likely to stay as much as, um, you know, we need people and, 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 and all the national institutions need support. And this is just another way of looking at it. Uh, and here, I take the numbers back to 1997. And you see there isn't any kind of, as it were, decline in the increase. And um, at the moment, as you saw in the last slide, the total number of pupils in England who have been officially labelled as... hmm, I have to be careful. Related to EAL, if you like, is over a million now. The reason why I'm I'm, I'm hesitating a little bit is because the... um, the uh, Office of um, uh, National Statistics uses a a rather kind of loose category to account for EAL. It, It isn't pupils with English as an additional language background. It's rather pupils whose first experience of language is in a language other than English. So you can see it's a kind of... Loose category. And it could be someone from, let's just say, a second generation migrant family context where they might have picked up a few words of the home language, but not much more. And for all intents and purposes, this person is actually English dominant, with a few words in, let's just say, um, possibly Cantonese or uh, Punjabi or something like that, and would be okay to kind of you know say a few words to granddad on the phone on his birthday, but actually can't really talk about you know money supply or anything like that. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about a lot of people like that, and they are also labeled as CAL. So we've got to be very careful with statistics. Okay. But even so, we, we have a big picture. The big picture is we are talking about increasing linguistic diversity with lots of uh, pupils in, the, in our schools who are learning English as an additional language. So who are these people on the ground? Well, again, the diversity is infinitely complex. Um, I've kind of given you uh, here a, a little bit of a kind of rough sketch. Okay, firstly, we have young British people, often more often than than not, uh, born in the UK and so on, who are familiar with, if you like, the local language, lo- local language and cultural practices. Many of them are English dominant. But they may actually still retain a trace of other languages in their linguistic repertoire. And it may well be that if they are from a particular socioeconomic uh, position, uh, they may not be perhaps um, in, if you like, a situation where they are achieving very well academically. And so they may still require some support with, if you like, the use of English for academic purposes. So that's one group. And that's really quite a significant group, because increasingly, when you see multi-ethnic youth in, in places like London, when they talk, they sound like very much like the local people. They, they're not anything you know that's from you know, uh, from Belgium or something like that, okay. Um, and then there are those who are, who've been you know, in the school system for quite a long time, you know, maybe three, four, five, six, seven years. but you know, they would still need some degree of EAL support because they may not be 100% comfortable with the use of academic language for both spoken and written purposes, okay? And, uh, and then there are new arrivals, and there are lots and lots of them, uh, you know, in, in the big urban areas, but increasingly also in areas where, for example, there's a lot of work um, in relation to agriculture, for example. So there are lots of people moving around, and, and they come with their young children and so on. And then increasingly, we see you know, circular migration, particularly from the EU, whereby skilled uh, uh, workers come with the family for specific jobs. And when the job, jobs are done, they move on, and they come back later. So for example, if um, High Speed 2 or Heathrow Terminal, Five, six, seven, whatever uh, <laughs> should uh, happen, then you know lots of skilled workers, professionals would come from the rest of EU very quickly. They might have been here before building Terminal Five, but they they will be here again. And when that job is finished, they might go to you know go to Amsterdam or Stockholm, do another job. And when that's finished, maybe something else goes on in you know. Birmingham, so they come back. So we're now talking about a diverse range of EAL pupils. Some are effectively local people uh, in need of academic language support, for want of a better term. Others are absolute beginners, new to English in every way, at every possible age within the schooling um, range. And then there are those people who are in and out of the country. And so they, might, be, you know, they might, might have picked up three, four, five languages on their travels. But every time they come back to England, it's a little bit new again, and they've got to pick it up and start again. And they would be older, and they would be dealing with different uh, content in the environment, in the, in, in, in the curriculum, and so on. So you can see it's not a simple picture for teachers. It's not as if you know, there are those guys over there who need to learn English, so we are just going to teach them. You need to think about what they need and, 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 and how much time they have with you. Don't forget, people arrive at all sorts of ages. And the current policy is that we integrate uh, all uh, new arrivals, whether they are familiar with English or not, we put them into the age-appropriate year group or classes. So, you know, if I was 14 and I came, you know, yesterday, then I would be put into key stage three, top end. No question. And that's it. And from there, I have to pick it up, Okay. So the issue of current EAL policy is primarily one of equality of access. That is, no matter who you are, You're entitled to be in the curriculum, but that equality also puts you in a situation where you are, as it were, in a a class with others who might have been in the system for much longer than you, who may be mother tongue speakers of English or who may be other EAL uh, background pupils, but with a much uh, better proficiency in the English language than you are. So you are in that big swim, as it were. And uh, the range of language proficiency in English would be quite wide. Okay. And the 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 equality of access then means that in every single classroom we would have a range of EAL pupils. At the same time, the general policy disposition is that there's no need for any special EAL curriculum or subject or timetabling provision because the best policy is for people to learn English through meaningful use. And you can see the line of the rhetoric. What better meaningful use than when you're talking about the curriculum content? That's absolutely meaningful, right? The content is meaning. And if you use the language in that meaningful way, then it is held that it provides you with the best chance of picking up English. This, I'm sure many of you in the room would begin to kind of raise issues and say, hmm, what kind of language development model is that? Is there a difference between first or second and third language? So on. So there are lots of questions. But the upshot of that policy disposition is that there is no dedicated EAL provision in the school curriculum. Primary or secondary. Okay? That to the extent it happens at all, some schools are now beginning to provide some sort of induction program for the absolute beginners who have just joined school. But this normally is very sort of short term, maybe six weeks, maybe a term at the most. Uh, And it normally takes place outside the regular curriculum time, so lunchtime or after school. And where it is actually held within the uh, curriculum time normally is restricted to maybe one or two lessons uh, a week sometimes maybe on a couple of days or something like that. Partly because it's very expensive to do that, partly because there isn't any staff with expertise to do it. OK? So it's a very interesting issue here. And there is no EAL as a subject specialism in, on the PGCE program. We know that. I think some folks here are doing PGCE. So you probably know that very well. EAL isn't a PGCE subject at all, in that sense, and in fact, um, EAL as an issue uh, often gets the lowest rating in the uh, NQT survey. Um, normally, around about sixty percent, much lower than in all the subject areas. So you know, when the NQTs are asked, "Well, did you learn uh, your subject well?" you know, in your PGCE year. Very often across the, the range, you get about 80% or above 80%. But when it's EAL, it's normally about 60% because they don't, you know, m- many of the young, newly qualified, early career teachers don't feel terribly comfortable with it because they just haven't been given enough uh, support. So in the round, then this is a much more, um, as it were, DIY subject area than anything else within the national curriculum, OK? So there's a lot of goodwill, a lot of um, you know, um, formal equality. But in terms of support and curriculum uh, um, infrastructure, there's very little, OK? And here, I'm going to give you, maybe in the next five minutes or so, a, a little kind of taste of what I mean by that, OK? So in the Key Stage 1 2014 National Curriculum English, um, you'll find that there's a strong emphasis on phonics, teaching phonics uh, as part of um, the, as it were, the focus on reading and literacy and so on. But in fact, you might say with the EAL pupils, Is phonics really the best thing for them in terms of developing the English? Well, you might say, yes, it is probably very useful for them to learn to be able to, as it were, decode, and to sound out the the words, the strings of letters on the page, and so on. But of course, as we all know, uh, that's only one aspect of uh, uh, so-called reading. Um, In fact, reading is much more than that, and so Therefore, if you are EAL minded, you might begin to wonder, you know, at what point would you be able to, as it were, provide different and additional support for those uh, pupils who are at an uh, early stage of learning English beyond, as it were, the idea of phonics. Now, phonics makes a lot more sense if you're talking to people who are familiar with the sounds of the language and have a communicative experience of using the sounds of English to communicate meaning. In other words, lots of young people don't need to know the wo- how the words are written before they can talk and make sense. And so to help them to read in that sense by focusing on the ability to decode is clearly doing something Okay, for some pupils. But for EAL pupils, they may not even have the experience of the sounds themselves. So if you actually help them to uh, to Decode. Fine, that's, that's obviously one uh, one little step forward. But is it to do with reading? Well, it depends on what words and, and, and so on, OK? So you could teach me to say the word English. But if I actually don't know the context of the word English in terms of what's being spoken about, then I, you might say, well, yeah, he knows how to say English. But actually, he doesn't know the meaning of it. So therefore, reading is a little bit kind of um, uh, kind of distant, kind of a uh, uh, target still, okay? And another point they make, and, and this is uh, the last bullet point here on the screen, it says um, something about it's really important for pupils to be taught um, to uh, respond, as it were, uh, to the letters they see, the string of letters they see in print with the correct, as it were, phonic knowledge. It's a very tricky one. I don't know what phonics knowledge is in the sense of, do you mean one kind of, as it were, speech sound, or is it some kind of codified notion of certain sounds should always be like that, that kind of static sound value. But If you look at some pupils with different first language backgrounds where, for example, the vowels are not differentiated in the same way in terms of vowel lengths. So if you think of English as S-I-T, one word, another word S-E-A-T, right? In your head, you know what they sound like. The vowels are of different lengths, Okay. Now, It's quite possible that for a person with a particular language background, you could call it Cantonese, if you like, may not have the same, as it were, background assumptions about the length of certain vowels. But when they actually look at the word S-I-T, and another word S-E-A-T, they probably know what they mean if they've learned the word, the meaning of it. So to be able to respond to a string of letters on a page with the correct sound is actually quite a kind of complex issue. And we need to think about it in relation to EAL as well. Because you, know, you can't say someone who would know, who, 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 you know, say sit and seat in a kind of perhaps less than differentiated way would not necessarily know the different meanings so to learn how to read then crosses over yet another complexity here, OK? So there are all sorts of very interesting questions in almost every aspect of the national curriculum for English in relation to EAL, just that's a little taste from the primary. Here's one bit from the secondary. And this is a general requirement, OK? People should be taught to control. They're speaking and writing consciously, understand why sentences are constructed as they are and to use standard English and so on. You can see, okay. Think about it a little more. I get this complexity. So that's the first clause in that term, in in, in that statement. But actually, I remember not so long ago, in another DFES, or you know, it was called the Department for Education and Skills at the time, okay? 2006, in relation to EAL, it says something like this on the right-hand side, that English can be understood, as, as it were, in terms of two systems. One system, one kind of system is called acquired. The other is learned and that the acquired system is the preferred system um, because it is more naturalistic. It is very much part of, as it were, a person's kind of acquisition through meaningful use. I said this a few minutes ago, that the model was meaningful use as the conduit for language development. Well, that's what it says, Okay, And if you go back to that. policy statement, it tells you that, you know, acquisition is actually the uh, the key way to acquire language, to develop language. Well, it also fits, if you like, with the curriculum provision, because if the acquisition metaphor is used, then it's almost like a first language development process. If that's the case, you don't need any dedicated, special, prescriptive, Curriculum statements to help people learn because it's like a child at home. You talk to mum and dad, and you know you pick up a language. So you know there isn't a national curriculum for for babies for English, is there? You are, as it were, <laughs> you are, as it were, the model. Okay. So from that point of view, then uh, it isn't any surprise that you know the acquired system, so called. Uh, is the preferred one, and you can see Stephen Krashen's work everywhere in this particular model. For those of you who are linguistically minded, okay, the, learners, the learned system uh, is there; it's okay, but it really isn't you know isn't the business. It is there to kind of teach formal rules, and YAL doesn't really require much of that, okay. And yet, now you know, back to 19, uh, 2013, we have this business of speaking and writing consciously. So, we need to you know, think about how to kind of navigate uh, uh, through the, as it were, the contradiction, the difficulties for EAL teachers. If you carry on reading a bit more, the same uh, clause, understand why sentences are constructed as they are, and to use standard English. Well, I'm not sure if "why" is the right word. Because if you say "why," then you're going to teach etymology of words and history of grammar. I suspect what was meant is something like how. Because you can teach someone to work with the rules to form rule bound, rule govern uh, sentences, utterances, and so on. Okay? So there's something, something of a slippage there. But in any case, I mean, Standard English for EAL, well, yes, I mean, who is to deny, you know, the value of Standard English? But we also know from years of research that multilinguals have a much richer repertoire than a specific kind of variety of language X. And that for multilinguals to develop the multilingual, multifaceted, uh, communicative repertoire to the full, just as anybody should, then, you know, we should encourage people to use the full range of what they have, their linguistic resources, their their, their, their recourse to a whole range of semiotic resources. That's the way to go, to make people, you know, become richer and better communicators, rather than to, as it were, trying to, in the curriculum, reduce their Communicative repertoire restrict them to one particular variety of language, so there are issues, lots of issues, from the point of view of EAL. Now, for some of you folks here who might be English specialists, you might have your own views in relation to English anyway, but I'm just putting the EAL dimension on this. Okay, so by and large, then you can see that the national curriculum over the the generations now. And we've had it for the best part of, what, two decades, and so on. Um, In many ways, I would say, uh, perhaps being argumentative, I would say it's not terribly sensitive to uh, a lot of uh, pupils in our midst. And we're not talking about small numbers. We're talking about easily a million uh, pupils in the system. So something to be chewed over a bit more, I think, for us. So the conceptual issues then, okay, English language learning is suffused in the flow of everyday curriculum activities and general classroom communication. So the the idea is participation in a classroom is at least a... um, Necessary condition, but is is it sufficient? Well, not sure yet. Okay. But what would classroom interaction data tell us? You know, if you actually look at the classroom and look at the interaction in the classroom, look at talk in interaction, would we learn something new, something more? we well, we'll have we we'll have a look in a minute. Okay. In terms of um, a higher level of abstraction. There's very little discussion in the policy documents as to what counts as learning. And in a way, you know, we shouldn't be too surprised because policy makers are not terribly interested in theories of learning or the philosophy of the mind or anything like that. So that's OK. But still, you know, for people like us, we need to think a little bit about it. What exactly is the model of uh, this kind of learning? Well. We all know, you know, from our own work, learning is a very complex thing. And it's very difficult to, you know, define it and so on. And but from my point of view, if you are going to say the curriculum model for EAL is built on this kind of naturalistic acquisition through exposure and meaningful use, then Maybe the best way is to adopt, as it were, a holistic view of what learning is. And that what learning is, is what you do. And what you do is part of a social practice. So in other words, I'm really referring to, as it were, high up in the kind of philosophical think, thinking. Um, for example, Shatsky's notion of mind. And that is, mind, there's no uh, duality of body and mind. What you know, what you do, uh, really should or should be seen as an integrated whole. So if I engage with you today, speaking to you through the medium of English in this way, then maybe this is both a reflection and a moment of realisation of my knowledge of English. I don't need to sit a test in English to demonstrate how much I know. What you get is what there is. And what I say is who I am, OK? So this then you know, has a particular kind of take on it. And it allows us to make sense of how to, as it were, investigate EAL development within the curriculum, OK? Whereas if you say, well, people know a lot more English than what they may show, then you are then obliged to test through some other instrument, what people really know, and then what people may do and show you in any interaction. That is perhaps too complicated from the point of view of the curriculum model that we, we are using, that is, we collectively in England, OK? And the, the big story within the EAL policy uh, position is that there are two kinds of language, and I think the policymakers uh, draw on Jim Cummins' work uh, in a very significant way, BIX and CALP. Many of you will be familiar with this. For those who are not, well, BICS is basic interpersonal communication skills, and CALP is cognitive academic language proficiency. And I'll use everyday language for BICS from here on and Calp academic language as a shorthand. Okay. So the policymakers appear to like Jim Cummins' work very much and sort of bought uh, the idea of Bix and Calp and they have <coughs> sort of rendered Bix and Calp in their own way. So from here on what I'm gonna say is nothing to do with Jim Cummins' ideas. <laughs> OK, it's more to do with what policy makers have done to his ideas, (laughs) OK, partly because Jim is a friend, (laughs) but uh, beyond that I say no more. Uh, So everyday language is communicative language, Okay, and that is used for face-to-face, highly contextualised kind of communication. In a school context, think of it as, you know, greetings in the morning, um, playing uh, at uh, lunchtime on the playground, or getting food and things like that. Routine, fairly um, familiar activities where language uh, uh, is used in a fairly kind of uh, formulaic, predictable way. Okay. Academic language comprises two parts, or two kinds, cognitive language and academic language. Cognitive language is the language we use to investigate, explore, solve problems. So in other words, the language of reasoning. And academic language here appears to mean, to refer to, as it were, the formal aspects of language or the the features of language such as spelling and so on. But it, but it also um, uh, uh, covers notions of um, more abstract language, metaphor and so on. So language now in the hands of as it were uh, the policy, uh, can be seen as somehow comprising three Types three parts, three kinds. Okay, there's the everyday stuff, the highly routinized meaning making. Then there's this language of reasoning, and then there's this highly formalized uh, language in terms of features such as spelling and so on. You know, long words like photosynthesis. You know, full of Greek and Latin roots and things like that. Okay, and the idea is that you move from the bottom, where the cursor is, everyday language, and progressively over the schooling years, you get up to, over here, let's say A-level. A-level maths, A-level English, where you can talk about ideas in, abstract, in, in the abstract without any context of standing on the playground or you know, sitting in a canteen talking about food, which is down here. Where there's plenty of context to help you understand what's going on. You know, if you see a play of chips, then you know, even if you are not familiar with the word chips, soon you'll pick up the word chips because they look like chips and you eat them and so on. And it's repetitive, it goes on every day. Where it's up there, you know, discussing anything like literature or um, mathematical concepts and so on may not be every day at all. And where by the time you get to a level you might have relatively little as it were uh, contextual support because much of the ideas would be carried through the language, the talk and the writing okay so that's the that's the trajectory uh, in this analysis and the teacher's task is of course to show the way from there to there okay so BICS is meant to be for social. The everyday language is meant for social exchanges. Academic language is for teaching and learning. And also, there's an implication, implication that there's a sequence of EAL development. You start with the everyday. When you first arrive, for example, from Poland, this is where you start. Okay, And then a few years later, you should be up there. So there's a kind of sequential movement. Whether it works or not, we'll see in a minute, Okay, But that's the the kind of assumption built into it. So my question is, is everyday language easier to understand? Because the idea is you can learn it first, you see? The answer may be very complicated, Okay, So we'll now look at a a, a stretch of talk, Okay, The focal pupil is uh, Saira, key stage three, um, in a West London school. And it's a math lesson. The pupils, the teacher has taught the, the concepts of median and mode in maths. Okay? And they are now um, sort of at a point where they're doing kind of classroom uh, 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 exercises and teachers going round, Okay? I'll play you a clip in a moment. A little bit of background with Sira. Sira's um, a fluent, fluent. Uh, speakers, a uh, speaker of English uh, with about four to five years of experience in England. So, in you know, a sort of everyday sense, she's fluent, okay? And at a time of uh, 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 she moved from, from a northern town to London, and when she was uh, first enrolled at this school in West London, she was kind of assessed by her teachers, and she was, um, she was, um, Slightly below the national average for her age group, okay? But not not by a lot. And you can hear in in a moment, she's very uh, fluent, okay? Now, here's the academic language. Just to let you into the secret of academic language, this is straight from the national curriculum documents, okay? The the definitions and so on, okay? Just in case you've forgotten your maths from school. <laughs> now, I'm going to play a clip. And at the beginning, uh, the, uh, the words have not been sh- uh, put on this transcript. I'll, I'll give you a signal when, it, when we get to that point, OK? Because you don't really need for the whole transcript to make sense of this. So, OK, it hasn't started. Syrah, stop. here now. Okay, I suspect you get what's going on here. Now, at the start, I think uh, I think you you will agree with me that Sarah was okay. She knew how to work out, if you like, the mean between two numbers, and she got it right. The moment the teacher switched over to mode, she kind of found it a bit difficult to understand what's going on, and so, Throughout this little short extract, you, you see that Saira reverts back to the median thinking all the time, and that every time the teacher tries to kind of, as it were, bring her over, for whatever reason, Saira doesn't kind of come along, and she goes back again and again. And by the time we get there, you can, you can hear from her, well, my interpretation would be, so was more or less giving up and sort of say, oh, anything you say, miss, you know, just, <laughs> just leave me. I, I, I have had enough, you know, that sort of thing. So what's really interesting is, whatever the mathematical reasoning for that, I'm sure, you know, mathem- you know, mathematics teachers would have a lot of interesting things to say. Indeed, I've shown my colleagues, and they do have interesting things to say. But for us, the important thing is, right through this short extract, which is, you know, only about 1 minute and maybe (coughs) uh, 40 seconds or something like that, you didn't pick up any of this language, did you? None of this academic language. Very little of it. I mean, okay, median mode, but you you can hardly avoid those if you're doing maths. But, But you don't get any of this formal language. What you get is this, what if, if I give you, and I can in front of you, one, two, three, three, you know, contextualize. In other words, very much the kind of everyday language being described as the stuff that you pick up first, right? Here, what we have is a complex situation of that very, as it were, everyday language being used for teaching purposes. And in the teaching, the meaning suddenly drops off. It's very difficult you to understand what's going on here. And if you are not with, as it were, the teacher, then you're not following it. And you notice, at this point, the teacher actually read 49. 1, 2, 3, 3, 4, 8, almost contextualising, pointing at what's, what's happening and where the numbers are and what she's talking about. Did it help? Didn't appear to in this instance. So now that raises a very interesting question for us. Is everyday language easier to understand? Is it easier to even learn? Well, I suspect actually the story is much more complex than that because it depends on what you're using the language for. So the language form itself does not determine the ease or difficulty of understanding is to do with the meaning that is being, as it were, carried, that I think is part of the story that we're not looking at and and the simplification of the kind of, you know, everyday language and academic language being two kinds of language I think is perhaps slightly flawed, Okay. So if you take the view that, you know, what we say reflects what we know and understand, then how are things going for Saira? Well, things are not going very well for Syra, Syra, nor for the teacher because the teacher is obviously not getting through and Syra is not getting it. So whatever it is, we're not you know, any better off using a sim- sort of simple form of everyday language. And does participation in talk mean learning or lead to learning? Well, on that, as it were, small uh, moment of, as it were, interaction, Participation does not lead to anything other than just participation. That is, you have interacted, that's it. So then, you know, what you have done is you have shown yourself to be a good, diligent, hardworking, attentive pupil. It doesn't mean that you learn anything. And that's an interesting issue in itself, okay? So Bix and Carp obviously is something to be kind of looked at again in, in the hands of policymakers. Now here's another little episode. I haven't got a clip here because um, partly because it 's very short and partly because I think you'll see what 's going on i'll i 'll voice some of this for you okay here 's um, a s level um, biology in another west london school and um, different school okay and the, the class is um, you know eighty um, percent ethnic minority the school itself is ethnic minority eighty percent ish okay and um this is at the beginning of the class, OK? The, the teacher comes in, and the, the, the students kind of uh, they're settling down, milling around a little bit. And, um, and the teacher sort of, you know, calls attention to the front, saying, today we're going to look at seeds on the whiteboard. Not not here. You're not seeing that, OK? You know, the, the lesson objectives and stuff like that at the beginning of the lesson. Seeds uh, dispersal and things like that. So everybody's kind of you know, sitting down, looking at the teacher, and the atmosphere is very nice, very friendly, OK? There's nothing sort of um, confrontational about it. Teacher starts, OK? So we're going to look at seats today, compare how seats are, are used. It's in your textbook if you want to have a look. At, uh, a look. But it's too confusing for some people. So maybe you want to leave it. Here's a teacher talking, okay? Here, guys, you know, uh, what we're looking at today is in your textbook, but it's actually a bit too hard for some of you, a bit confusing, so you you might not want to look at it, but uh, just talk to me, okay? Now, the teacher is not just doing straightforward content teaching. There's a lot else going on. You could say it is to do with... Building on the interpersonal relationship that they may have developed, um, a kind of you could say a kind of teasing, a kind of um, a kind of mock abuse, but it's to do with pushing to the limit, building on what the teacher I think feels that um, is of some value because it's not just about the seats, it's about you guys, and I know you guys, and, and if, you know, I know that some of you may not want to do the reading for whatever reason, but I can say it because, you know, this, this is me and I know you. The, one of the, pupil, the focal pupil. line six, she says, without any kind of uh, urging from the teacher, that's well horrible. Are you calling me dumb now? So this is the pupil, okay? That's well horrible, she says to the teacher, OK? Now, just look at the language, the form of language. That's well horrible. It's not language you use for formal purposes. It's very much a kind of youth talk, right? And that she's challenging the teacher. Are you calling me dumb now? Now, she's playing the same game as the teacher. The teacher you know, expresses some kind of mock insult. The pupil responds by challenging her, okay? And the teacher responds, line seven, if I was, I would tell you to your face, but I'm not. So carrying on a bit, this kind of you know, entanglement, okay? Pupil then comes back and says, uh, line eight, but you are implying it, aren't you? Won't let go. So they are having a kind of go at each other but in a way that is not, as it were, necessarily aggressive, okay? Some kind of liminal play of relationship is going on here, okay? teacher then says, not at all. And at that point, the teacher switches back to the teaching frame. So first question for you, back to seeds and biology. So that play, that passing moment of two or three seconds, you know, goes by without anybody forcing it into a kind of confrontation. And in fact, I mean I won't have time today, but you know, in a in fuller analysis, um, uh, if you're interested, just email me, I send you the, the, the paper. Okay. This happens again and again right through the rest of the lesson. Interspersed between bits of content teaching, you would find this kind of interpersonal entanglement. But none of it gets out of control. All of it is contained within the frame of the lesson. So every time the teacher returns to teaching, all this stuff is dropped. So there's a kind of, you know, like a, a, like a kind of dance going on between the students and the teacher, pushing each other a little bit here and there, you know, insulting each other, using mock abuse, some kind of, as it were, um, Ritualistic humiliation, and so on and so on. But nothing ever gets out of control. The atmosphere remains very, very cordial throughout. And yet those little moments are like sort of potential sort of, um, sparkles, okay? Something's going on in the air. Now, here you are, you know, this kind of talk is full of everyday language. But it's not at all easy, is it? To talk like this, to talk like that people, you really need to have a very high sense of membership knowledge of what counts as local classroom culture to pull that one off. Because otherwise, you end up with a fist fight. You know, you what are you calling me? You calling me dumb? You know, next thing you know is a big fight. But no, nothing like that. So there's a kind of engagement beyond the language. But the language carries it in a way that appears to be very kind of easy and so on, but it's very sophisticated, that kind of everyday talk. Not at all easy. If you are new to the school, new to the community, new to England, you can't do this. You'd get it wrong. And if you try, you end up in a fight. Uh, I think some, some some of us must have experienced this too. Okay, so, so there, there, there are all kinds of very complicated things going on in the name of everyday language, and none of it is actually that everyday at all. So, really, really, speaking in context and in interaction is not a solo performance, it's very complex. And that, you know, the co construction of it is really what's making it terribly difficult, and yet it's, it's, it's sort of underplayed in the curriculum framework, okay? And increasingly, in kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural uh, situations, it's not just language you need. You also need to be able to have particular kind of commitments to communication, what Claire Kramsch would talk about in terms of symbolic competence. In highly complex uh, 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 multilingual situation situations, the fact that you get through. It's not just about you have the linguistic means to get through, but also a commitment to communicate with others, to show goodwill and all the rest of it. And that is now as much part of the speaking uh, capacity as anything else in, in an increasingly diverse situation. So what I'm trying to say then is, instead of, you know, simplifying everyday academic language, what we should do really is to think through that in fact, everyday language and academic language actually co-occur, intermingle all the time. And as we've seen from the little uh, extracts uh, from the classroom, this stuff is never pure. You know, even the most everyday would contain one or two formal, as it were, elements. And so-called everyday, as it were, chat turns out to be hugely sophisticated and complex. So. EAL learners have to grapple with meaning through contingent language use. That is what's missing in the way that language has been conceptualised for EAL pupils. Contingent use. And formal, informal language is not necessarily easier to understand. Because, you know, if I were, you know, my first week uh, uh, in the school uh, from a place called Poland, that little biology lesson exchange would be way beyond me. I wouldn't know what's happening. I would just sit there and think, oh, people are just talking. That's about it, Okay. So whether formal language is more or less difficult to learn is clearly an issue. But the point is, it's not definitely more difficult than everyday language. In fact, everyday language may be as difficult to learn. It depends on what you are using the language for. And especially when content is involved, it's definitely quite difficult, as we've seen in the maths lesson. The content was not open to understanding for that pupil at that time, no matter what you do with the language. So something else would have to happen. So at that, on that note, I've spoken for an hour just slightly over time. Thank you very much.